So one of the things that I wanna come back to as we get started is just the, the first reminder that for many of you who think I preach a long time, Deuteronomy is a sermon, right? 34 chapters. Like, can you imagine if my, if my, uh, my sermons were 30? There'd be nobody here. I'm like, I'm not as eloquent, obviously, as Moses. I'm not as powerful of a speaker, but that's it. Moses' sermon was 34 chapters long. My goodness, right? I mean, like, you can imagine, just reading it aloud would take a significant portion of time. But you know what? The people of Israel, they were there for it. They were there for it because what Moses had to say was important. We get in Moses' sermon here, Deuteronomy, a, a retelling of, of the law, which is really what Deuteronomy means. Again, it's like a retelling of, of the law. Okay, we get the, the retelling of, uh, of, of the experience of, of the Israelites and, and then an invitation, an invitation as Moses says at the end of the book several times, and even in chapter four as well, to choose life, to choose life, right? And so it's this amazing sermon. And even within the sermon, there's like an entire chapter that's just a song, like 32. And Moses like sings the song to the people. And he's like, now you guys sing this forevermore. You know, like you guys remember this, sing this song. And it's a weird song because it's like, it's not super happy. It's not, you know, like there's a lot in that song. Um, and we actually are going to unpack it in our next, in our, in our next few uh, weeks. So after we unpack Deuteronomy 6, we're just going to briefly look then at Deuteronomy 32, right? But all that to say, it is, it is an interesting sermon, you know, um, and within it, as I said, we find this invitation to know God. And so the first week, as we were looking at this, now, I'm going to do something dangerous. I've got quite a few slides. And as we know, so like, feel free if like, I'm completely off to say something to me, please. Like, some feedback would be nice because you know, I'm looking out at your wonderful faces and not back at the screen. So uh, if I'm off, I won't notice. So please help me so I don't make a complete fool of myself. All right? We can do this together, guys. We can get through these slides together. All right, so, so here's just, if you haven't been with us, here's a brief overview, or if you've been with us and you just don't remember, or you, know, you just weren't paying attention, whatever that may be. So here's what the last four, four weeks uh, we've been looking at. So we've been looking at memory, how memory serves as an invitation to know God, because the first four chapters of Deuteronomy are just a story, a retelling of Israel's history. From the time that they left um, no, sorry, from the time they crossed the Red Sea until the current period that they're in now where they're about to cross over to the Promised Land. So 40 years. So Moses gives them in four chapters, 40 years of history. And he invites them to remember, to see themselves. So many of the people that were hearing this story were not actually present for the events. And Moses is inviting them into the story. And we talked about how God, too, is inviting us through Jesus into his story, to be a part of the story of what God is doing in redeeming creation back to himself, that we get to play a part in that, that the story of Israel is, is our story too, because the story of Israel finds its climax in the story of Jesus, right? And then the next week we talked about worship. We talked about how, how we tend to worship that which we love, but conversely, that which we love speaks, or sorry, that which we worship speaks to our hearts in a powerful way. And so we have to be careful about the things that we assign value to, and especially the things that we're tempted to assign ultimate value, because those things will speak to our hearts, to our loves, to our desires, 
in powerful ways. The habits that we form, the things that we worship will speak to our hearts. And so we need to be people who worship rightly and that as we worship rightly, we come to know the true living God. Then the next week, we, we jumped into law, right? Always never the most exciting topic, but I hope that as we talked about the law, we saw how the law teaches us, even through our bodies, to be more like God. In the law, we find the heart of God. And through the, through the commands of the celebrations, even, <coughs> sorry, through the commands of the celebrations, even, we get to experience the joy uh, of the presence uh, of God and to enjoy his grace and his blessing through the law. And finally, last week, Luke spoke on covenant and how in the covenant we are invited into a partnership, into a, a relationship with the one true and living God, that it is not just a transaction. It is not transactional, but rather it is relational, that we are called into meaningful, true relationship with God to know him as a covenant and promise-keeping God. And as Paul says in 2 Timothy, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. That though we fail to uphold our part of the covenant on a regular basis, God is still faithful to his end of the covenant because that is who he is. And so you and I find ourselves in need of grace. But if Deuteronomy is just a book all about laws, if Deuteronomy is just a book about obedience and following all the rules, like how is that the grace that we need? Well, I think both Deuteronomy and the New Testament actually ground the hope of humanity in God's grace. That even within the law, God had built his grace into the whole system, knowing we would fail to keep the law over and over. God instituted a way through sacrifice for us to maintain relationship with God. In fact, if you want to, uh, you know, to go to the book of Leviticus, again, if you, know, if you were going to choose uh, books in your Bible to read, most of us, that would probably be fairly low on the list. But yet, if you were to look at it, you could look at it through the lens of this. How does a holy, perfect God draw near to a sinful, dirty people? <laughs> people who screw up, who make a mess of things all the time. How does a God who is completely holy draw near to people who are messed up, screwed up, and sinful? Because God built into his system, even with Israel, built into his relationship, into his covenant, grace. A covenant of grace. Even the Old Testament, we find grace. It's interesting that as we read the book of Deuteronomy, we find that Moses, as he preaches the sermon, holds out very little hope that the people were going to be any good at keeping the covenant. Right? He lays out all these rules. He says, this is what you should do. And hey, if you do this, there's going to be gobs of blessing because you're going to enjoy God's presence. You're going to enjoy the blessings. They will flow from God down to you because that is who God is. He loves you. He wants to bless you. And then he goes, yeah, but if you choose not to, experience, not to like live in relationship with God, guys, 
It's, it's not going to go well for you. Life is not going to go well. Because life outside of relationship with God is the exact opposite of what humans were intended to have. And again, I, I think I pointed this out in one of the sermons. I don't remember which one it was. I, even I forgot. But Genesis chapter 1 to 11, or sorry, 3 to 11, 4 to 11, are all about how humans make messes apart from God. That we don't, we don't get better and better, you know, progressively getting better and better as we drift further and further from God, but actually we become progressively worse. That the human race becomes progressively worse the further we drift from God. And so Moses holds out little hope that the Israelites would uh, make much of a sustained effort to know God. Because Moses understood something um, that we understand, that we, uh, I think, actually really, if we really think about it, understand as a people, and that's this. As people, we have a habit of rejecting God's good covenant and his invitation to know him. And instead, we, train, we trade relationship with God for a cheap substitution. That's where you and I are. We often, even those of us who, who say we're followers of Jesus, this is a problem for all of us, that we often trade relationship with God for cheap substitutions. Let's uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 31. So this morning, really, we're going to, we're going to, like, I'm going to have the passages on the screen. All right. But I would encourage you, like Deuteronomy 31, Deuteronomy 30, we're going to be floating around 30 and 31. Okay. So you can like hang out there. We'll have some other passages that we're going to hit. I'll put them up on the screen. If you like, you know, if you want to practice like how fast you are at turning to passages in the Bible, like by all means, please turn there. I would, I would love for you to do that, but it will also be up on, on the screen. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 31. We get, this, um, we get this idea or these words from Moses about uh, how optimistic he is about how good uh, the people will be at following Yahweh, at following God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 19 to 21, Moses says this. Or, well, God says to Moses, Moses says, this is what God has said to me. So write down the words of this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Help them learn it so it may serve as a witness for me against them. Now, remember, there's, I told you there's a song in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Okay, so there's, there's our context, right? So there's, there's a song. All right, so he wants them to teach, God wants Moses to teach them this song. For I will bring them into the land I swore to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. There they will become prosperous. That sounds good. Eat all the food they want, even better, and become fat. I know how that goes. Um, but, they will, <laughs> but they will begin to worship other gods. They will despise me and break my covenant. And when great disasters come down on them, this song will stand as evidence against them for it will never be forgotten by their descendants. I know the intentions of these people, even now, before they have entered the land. I swore to give them. So what do we see here? God is going to be the one who brings them into the land. I think that's the first thing we need to see. Verse 20, it doesn't say, so when you help yourself to the land, it says, no, so when I bring you into the land, when I bring them into the land, to the land, right? This is something that God is going to do. He's the one who's going to bring them into the land. But then he says, but, in verse 20, they will begin to worship other gods. They will despise me and break my covenant. 
And again, I just want to finish with these concluding words. I know the intentions of these people, even now, before they have entered the land. God knew what they were going to do. God knew what these people were going to be like. And yet, he chose to bless them anyway. (laughs) He chose to love them anyway and to give them a rich blessing and to warn them and say, you know, because there are other parts that say, guys, you're going to be tempted to walk away from me. Don't do it. And here he says that that's exactly what's going to happen. And so if the temptation, I think, for us as people, just like the Israelites, I don't think we're really all that. I think, I think it's important that when we're reading the Bible to see ourselves, you know, we like to see ourselves as good guys. Right? I think for the most part, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to think the worst about myself. Right? But I think it's important when we read the story of Israel to see ourselves as Israelites, not as Moses, <laughs> not as David. You know, more often than not, probably to see ourselves as, as the Israelites. And if the temptation for them and the temptation for us is that when things are bad, to blame God, which I think is, right? I mean, we've all been there, right? When things are bad, who do we turn? God, this is your fault. Why are you doing this to me? How dare you? How could you? Right? I mean, and look, I think that's a natural response. I think we see it in the Psalms as well. You know, like that, that is a, it's a natural human response, I think. When things are going bad, to blame God, I think then the converse is like that the temptation is that when things are good, we forget God and we blame ourselves. Ah, look what I did. I worked really hard. I pulled myself up by by my bootstraps and look what I accomplished. Good for me. Good for me. And what Moses is saying, what God is saying is that when the Israelites get the land, their temptation is going to be like, oh, we've done pretty well for ourselves, haven't we? Right? Jesus actually tells a parable about a guy who like, has his crops go great and he builds a barn and he sits down and he goes, self, <laughs> you are amazing. And that's our temptation, isn't it? When things are going really well. Right? We live in a culture that literally like, holds up almost as an idol the self-made man. The myth, I would say, of the self-made man. And so... We find that the temptation then is to forget God and to blame ourselves for our successes. Blame God when things are bad. Blame myself when things are good. Also, I think the temptation, as we're looking at this passage, the temptation is that when things are bad, we look to other things other than God. That we say, we blame God. We say, how could you do this to me? Do you know what? I think actually this will make things better. Right? This will be, there you go. Okay, if I follow this thing, that'll give me what I want. Right? So the temptation is that when things are bad, I look to other things. But also equally, and again, I think this is what we see in the passage. When things are good, we look to things that almost, I think, maybe feel more tangible to us than God for our success. I mean, can you think about that? Like, that when things are good, maybe we pat ourselves on the back as well, but we also, in, in trying to make things good, you know what, okay, if I just... You know, my, you know, my boss or my job or whatever, like we're tempted to look at those things. My hobbies, those are what are really going to make me happy. Or those are, you know, like we're tempted to look at other things that feel more tangible to us. Like having more money, right? If I have more money, then I can buy happiness. Literally, that is the way, I think, the way of the world. Like 
like that's, I mean, we're all probably predisposed to that to say, and, and there is a degree to which this is true, that if you have more money, you are happier. If you have more money than, you know, like if you're not living in absolute poverty, right, where you're wondering where your meal, next meal is gonna come from, but actually the ceiling becomes pretty, like ends up, I, I saw a study on this once, the ceiling actually ends pretty quickly as to how much money you need um, to, be, to be happier, <laughs> right? And then actually once you go above that ceiling, there is no increase in happiness. In fact, it's almost like a curve where it starts to, to dive again, which is really fascinating, I think. Um, but we are tempted as people to look at things more tangible than God. Because, right, I mean, how many of you guys have seen God? Like, literally seen God? I, I never have, right? It's a lot easier to look at something, you know, to pull out my wallet and look at the money in there or look at the number in my bank account than it is to, like, Trust in God because I can't see God. And so I think Moses and God here as we're reading this recognizes that temptation. This is going to be the temptation of the people to look at other things instead of God. God said no idols, but the reality is that idols give us something we can see. Whether it's a piece of wood or stone, whether it's a car or a house, whether it's chasing that perfect person, whether it's chasing success, there's something tangible that I think I can find or I can grab onto, and that's difficult. But God says no idols, that idols will never be able to give us what we want because idols are transactional, not relational. Idols are transactional, not relational. You do this for me, and I will give this to you, right? I mean, that's the way... Idolatry works, right? Your job. You work really hard for me, I will give you more money. It's transactional. And we tend to bring transaction. This is why Luke's sermon last week on covenant is so important because we tend to look at our relationships through the lens of transactional, of competition. Right? Even our friendships and those we care about, when they have more things than we do, oh, I need to, I need, like, it becomes competition. The idolatry actually, because it's transactional, breeds competition that says, if I can make this idol happier than the person next to me, then I will get more blessing. Whereas God is different. God is a covenant God who is relational. And this is hard for us because transaction is a lot easier than relationship. Right? A contract is a lot easier than covenant. In covenant, you bind yourself to somebody else. In contract, there's just some legal agreements that say, eh, quid pro quo. You know, you do this for me, I do this for you. It's transactional. But see, it's easier with transaction because it doesn't involve being vulnerable. It only involves a hollow sacrifice. Like, okay, I'll give you this so that I can get this. It doesn't involve covenant. But what if rather than transaction, covenant was actually so much better. That relationship is worth the work. Relational, like relationship with God is much better than simply transaction with God. All right, and so God says then, I will bring them into the land. I know what they're like, but I love them anyway. And the reality then that we see is that human beings say, yeah, okay, 
but I think actually this thing will give me something better. And so God says that he will bring judgment, like 21. And when great disasters come down on them, this song will stand as evidence against them. So there's a lot in Deuteronomy about what will happen when people don't follow God. And we can look at that and we can say, God, how could you be so mean? How could you be so cruel? Right? The Old Testament is just a God of judgment, full of judging. Judge, judge, judge. Mr. Judgy. Except that what we see most often in the Old Testament, and this is something I think it's important to understand. This is like my side note on judgment. This is important to understand. Most of the judgment that we see in the Old Testament is passive. The worst thing that God can do to us is let us have what we want. And I think that's what we're seeing in this passage. And that's what we see throughout Deuteronomy. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament. And when the Israelites are brought into exile, it's like, this is what happens when God says, fine, if this is what you want, I'm not going to protect you anymore. You can have what you want. If you really want the idols of the other nations, if you really want to be like the other people and not, be, not live in relationship with me and not be my people, okay, I'll step back for a minute and you can see how you like it. And if you change your mind, I'm right here. I'm not breaking my promises. I still care about you. I still want to live in relationship with you. But if this is what you want, okay. And what we find then is disaster. That when people say, you know what? No, thank you. I don't, I don't want to live in relationship with God. We find disaster. So Romans chapter 1 is one of the places we find this in the New Testament where Paul talks about letting people have what they want. Right? Paul says that God abandoned them to their desires. And that, I think, is what we find in, the Deut in Deuteronomy, especially with, with the curses. It says, if this is what you want, I can abandon you to the, your desires. It's not going to be good for you. And that that's the way God most often judges is by actually letting you experience what you think you want. Right? I think we live, like, think about, like, pre-COVID. And there's in some ways I almost, like, I'm just going to process this out loud, all right? Because this is something I've thought about. I think our world, like, we were constantly moving towards a world that was more and more digital. And, and to some degree, we, we have gone that way. Where people become more and more alone and living in, like, you know, living as an avatar online. Like, you know, that's kind of like the way things were, like, moving. Where people were becoming more and more isolated, more and more alone. Like, literally, Japan was in a, is in crisis over this because so many people are single and living alone that they're having their own issues with housing because of that. What are we going to do? People aren't living together anymore. They're living by themselves. They need, we need to find places for these people to live, right? We were moving in that direction. And then COVID came, right? And we almost got a taste of what we thought we wanted. <laughs> and it was miserable, isolated from everybody, not able to see people, not able to hug people, looking at somebody through a mask. Like, right, we got that taste. This, this is what you want? Are you sure? And I think a lot of us went, oh no, this isn't what I want at all. Because we're designed for community. Now, you may agree or disagree with that. That has, you know, like, again, that was free. Um, that's just like a thought that I had. But I think, again, one of the worst things God can do sometimes is give us what we want. <laughs> Because what we think we want is often not what we actually want. All right, so that's my, my aside on judgment. The other thing I'll say is this, is that I think God's judgment is meant to be about restoration. And he talks about this. He says, 
because, and, and we'll get there in just a second, <coughs> that God's judgment is meant to bring us to restoration. God's judgment is not always just one of these like, you know, like, I'm just going to crush you for fun. Like that's not, that's not God. That's not the character of God. That's not what we see. In fact, God disciplines those he loves in order to bring us back to him. And that's exactly what we see him doing with Israel. Because if we go to chapter 30 and we look at verses 1 to 5, there we go. All right, it's already up. There we go. All right, we look at 1 to 5. It says, now I'm going to read this. Sorry, I'm going to read this out of the ESV. And I can tell you why I think why I'm doing this because it's I think it's a better translation um, in some ways than I think the New Living interprets a couple of things wrongly here. Not just because I think that out of my own brain, but because of the reading and studying that I did. Um, I, I think um, the ESV is a better translation. So we're going to read it out of the ESV. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So right, Deuteronomy has been full of blessings and curses. Okay, that say. Here's what happens when you're with me. Here's what happens when you don't follow me, right? Okay. So when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. And we'll just, we'll stop there for a second. The people, it says, will return to the Lord and obey him. God's discipline is meant to bring people back to him. That the judgment of getting what you want, in a way, is meant to bring you back to him. And so we find, even in God's discipline, we find grace. That the people will return to the Lord and they will obey him. Now, if you're using the New Living, you'll find that... uh, In verse 2, it says, If at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I have given to you today, all right, the Hebrew language does not have a vocabulary as big as English. Sometimes you have to make interpretive decisions. Uh, The translators of the New Living, they do a great job with the translations of the Bible, but they're people. And, And so they translate this as a conditional. Okay? But as I was researching it as I was looking into it, I became much more convinced that it actually is connected more to verse uh, one when it says when. It is not if, it is when the people return to the Lord and obey him. So here's, here's what will happen. Then the Lord your God Sorry, I actually have these like highlighted, all these fun things. So return to the Lord, obey his voice, all your heart and with all your soul. Does that remind you of anything in Deuteronomy we've read before? Deuteronomy chapter 6. All right, and we'll, we're going to come back to that. Uh, but that's a repeated phrase throughout the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> right? So, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your ancestors, or even if your outcasts, even if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there 
he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So this is the idea. You turn and you come back to me. There is grace waiting for you. There is blessing waiting for you. Waiting for you. The Lord will. So then the Lord will. So when the people turn and they come back to God, when the people say, God, I'm sorry, we, we have screwed up. God is waiting, ready with grace and open arms to say, welcome home. Jesus illustrates this in one of his most famous parables, right? The parable of the lost son who goes off, who runs off and goes his own way. The father runs to welcome him home. This is the picture we see in Deuteronomy that says, when the people come back, then the Lord your God will restore, not might, but will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will, he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. All right, and I have uh, here, even if, okay? And you notice that even is in, in brackets because it's not actually in the translation of the ESV. But again, I just thought it was helpful because it carries that meaning, like even if, even if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. That means you can never go far enough for God's grace. You can never run away far enough. You think, I've been too bad. I've done too much stuff. You know, like, no way God could love me. Yes, he can. Even if you went to the uttermost parts, like you went to the absolute pits of awful, you're not too far. And that's good news for all of us because I don't think any of us have gotten to the pits. We, none of us have found the bottom of the pit yet, okay? Like, you know, maybe you feel like that right now. I don't know, but like, but here's the thing. You can't go too far. God in his grace is calling you back to him. There is tremendous hope in the expression, even if. Because no matter how severe the judgment or how distant the exile, God will restore his people. If you notice, God is the subject of most of the verbs in these verses. This is what God will do. This is what God is like. This is what God's grace is like. But there's a problem in Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy on its own doesn't give us enough. How can God hold out little hope of the people's obedience yet foresee a future for them as God's people? We get a taste. We get a taste. We just don't get the full answer. But here within Deuteronomy is couched this incredible phrase. It's probably not what we would expect to find in the book of Deuteronomy. Like I said, it may not be sufficient, but it is incredibly profound. Read this with me. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and your soul. There it is again. And so you may live. God knows the people can't do it on their own. God knows we can't do it on our own. And so even within this text of Deuteronomy, we find this amazing word from the Lord that he will change our heart 
And it's God who changes the heart. That He will change our heart so that we will love Him with all of our heart and soul. It is the Lord Himself who will accomplish the change of heart. He will accomplish what the people could not do. And through this act, they'll be turned back to God. Their hearts will be turned back to God. Now, like I said, we don't learn from Deuteronomy exactly how God's going to do this. It's just there. And then it like, just moves on. Like in passing, there it is. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. There's going to be a change of heart. But then it moves on without telling us how that's going to happen. And so we have to keep looking in our Bible. Time passes. A lot of time passes. Israel is established as a nation. And you know what, guys? If you're ever somebody who, who reads the, the prophets, you're going to find there's a common theme. God's people not living like God's people. God's people making a mess of their lives. And the prophets come in and say, guys, you're making a mess of your life. Here's the problem. And it always pretty much comes back to this. You live as awful people. You're just living however you want to live. You live as selfish, egotistical people who expect blessing, who live entitled lives thinking just because you call yourself a Jew that everything is going to be wonderful for you. Well, guess what? It's not. <laughs> They're harsh. The prophets are harsh. But within these, we find words of encouragement. And by the time we come to the prophet Jeremiah, we find that Jeremiah reveals that the Lord is going to make a new covenant with his people. But this time the law will be written on human hearts and not on stone tablets. There it is. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And so what we find is this great word from the Lord amidst, again, words of judgment that say, guys, you have messed this up. We find God's grace saying, You've messed it up, but I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I will put my instruction deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. And so we find that the natural desire of God's people then would be obedience to God in his ways. But, but how? How is that going to work? How is God going to do that? Jeremiah doesn't tell us. Again, we have to piece these things together. We have to begin to see how the story unfolds. And this, I think, is important, guys, that we see the Bible as a unified story. That again, and I said this at the beginning, where the climax is Jesus. And we're going to get to Jesus. But before we do, I think it becomes more profound to see that this story is one that's been unfolding from Genesis chapter 3 
to Deuteronomy chapter 30, to Jeremiah chapter 31. And so how exactly would the law be written on, the hearts in, on their hearts in the first place? We get to go to Ezekiel. As the story continues to unfold, Ezekiel then foresees a time when God would put his spirit in people. So Ezekiel, chapter 36, double check there, verses 25 to 27. Here's what Ezekiel says. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. Let's just pause there for a second. Again, it doesn't say, then you will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on yourself, and you will be clean, and your filth will be washed away. It doesn't say that. It says this is something God will do. I will do it. And I think that's important. You know, guys, even as we've been looking at the law, as we've been reading Deuteronomy, to see that even there, the people were already God's people. Obeying the law was an expression of love and living in relationship and in covenant relationship with God. Okay? And even, so even there, we find God doing this saying, do you know what? I will sprinkle clean water in you and you will be clean. You cannot save yourself, guys. We cannot save ourselves. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. What we find then in Ezekiel, as the story continues to unfold, is that if we're going to have hearts that are not made of stone, if we're going to have hearts where God's laws are written, where his where his instructions, his Torah is written on our hearts. It's not going to come by trying harder. It's going to come by experiencing the Spirit of God in our lives. Now, I think we've said enough times from here, but I will say it again. Covenant is a partnership, right? And so God is the one who will give us the new spirit. But if we want to experience the life that God has for us, it's going to take some effort from us. Right? God is not just going to completely zap us and now all of a sudden my life is perfect. I've got it all together. That's not how, that's not how it works. Right? I think we can all attest to that. That's not how it works. Okay? So there is a partnership there. But the initiative is God's. The new heart comes from God. You cannot give yourself a new heart. Okay? We have some great medical technology and transplants are possible. But you are not going to give yourself a new heart. Right? And even there, we know. It's not talking about a literal heart. It's talking about the core, the deepest part of who I am. That God will change who we are at the core of our being. We will no longer be the same. It's incredible. It's profound. It's amazing. It's grace. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we earn. But it is grace. But how? How would people cleanse from their iniquities? How would we get this new heart, this new spirit 
that's going to dwell within us. Ezekiel does not give us an answer. <laughs> but as we turn to Isaiah, again, guys, we haven't even got to the New Testament yet. The Old Testament's full of amazing stuff, right? And as we come to Isaiah, I don't know how many of you guys have ever come across Isaiah 53. It's a striking passage within, within a prophetic book. It just comes out of nowhere and it hits hard. Like all of a sudden, Isaiah 53. It's what many call the suffering, the passage of the suffering servant. And it is all about Jesus. It's incredible. Because I would encourage you to read the whole thing. But in Isaiah's suffering servant, we find that there is a righteous one who would suffer and die on behalf of the sinful. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The suffering servant would be the one who would come and make things right, who would help fulfill, who would bring about Ezekiel's promise of a, of a new spirit in us, who would bring about Jeremiah's promise of a new heart, who would fulfill Deuteronomy and Moses' <clears throat> proclamation that, we will, that God will change our hearts so that we will love him with all our heart. This suffering servant is the one who will make it possible. And I think this is important. That this is what, like, Jesus is the one who will take away our sin. And what is sin? This is something I think it's so important we continue to define. Right? Sin is, is a force, right? We see it as a spiritual force. Right? There is evil, real evil in the world. Sin is missing the mark. It's failing to be truly human. Right? I think, and sin is idolatry. Those are kind of the three main ways that we see the Bible talk about sin. But you and I, we fail to live truly as human all the time. We go our own way because to truly be human, like when I give myself to Jesus, this is one, like, when I give myself to Jesus, I'm not becoming less of myself. I'm becoming more of who I was created to be. And that actually when I go my own way, do whatever I want, I'm actually becoming less human. It's kind of a weird, weird thing that, the, you know, because again, our culture says following your heart, doing whatever you want, that's how you truly become yourself. Whereas the Bible says actually by, by giving up your desires, by following Jesus and asking his desires to become your desires, you actually become the person you were created to be. You begin to become a new human being who lives rightly, who lives justly, who lives lovingly, who experiences the grace and the joy of the presence of God. That actually that's what we were created for. And so it is Jesus who is the one who brings that that to us. It is no accident that this language sounds sacrificial in Isaiah 53. Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, talked about the sacrificial system, but here we find this sacrificial lamb who will be the one who makes the sacrifice for us now and forever. And so just like Isaiah, maybe we're left asking again, who is this man that will take away our sin, who will give us a new heart, who will give us a right spirit. It's Jesus. 
And as we close here, we come to a time of communion, right? We can think of and be reminded of Luke chapter 22. When Jesus institutes the, the Last Supper, when he institutes communion or the Eucharist, whichever word you are more, most comfortable with uh, on that, like, that's fine. When Jesus institutes that, when he brings it in, when he gives it to us as a gift, here's what he says. And keep this in mind with everything that we've read before about new hearts and new spirits, about a new covenant that something, you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants that you will love him with all of your heart and soul so you may live. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this in 19 to 20. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And so here's what we find. Deuteronomy is an invitation to know God. But we get to know God most fully in Jesus. And we experience the grace of God in Jesus. And Deuteronomy points us to God's grace. It is a signpost telling us of God's grace. And we experience that grace most fully in Jesus. In Jesus, we're invited into the story of God's redemptive work. We're invited into the worship of God as the promise-keeping, saving God. We are invited to experience the new life that God desires through the law of Christ, written on our hearts and empowered by the Spirit. And we're invited into a relational covenant with God through Jesus' sacrifice. In Christ, we are invited to know God through his grace and his mercy toward us. This is not a new characteristic of God, but it is one that has been there all along. And we experience it most fully in Jesus. And so Moses in Deuteronomy invites the people to choose life. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, Moses says, Now listen. Today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. Yeah. Jesus is inviting you and me to choose life. And when we come to communion, every single week we have this moment of decision. We, like the people in Deuteronomy, are brought to this point of decision that says, are we going to choose life? Or are we going to choose to keep going down the path that ultimately leads to misery and destruction? That leads to pain and heartache. That leads to feeling like there must be something more. <laughs> what are we going to choose? Are we going to choose the new covenant? Are we going to choose to live in relationship with Jesus? God is inviting us through Jesus to choose life. Every Sunday as we take communion, we're invited to choose life. We stand at a moment of decision today. You stand at that moment. Will you choose life or will you choose death? I hope the answer to that is that you choose life.
And if that's the case, we want to celebrate that with you. Whether that's a renewing of saying, you know what, I haven't been going the right way, but I want to choose life. I want to change the trajectory of my life, the decisions of my life. I want to change that. Because the church, we want to help you with that. That's what the church is for. We're people that gather together to follow Jesus together, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Maybe you're somebody who's never made that decision. You go, you know what? I've never actually made that decision. Maybe one time I raised my hand, I said a prayer. Maybe I never have. But maybe you want a covenant with Jesus. Like, look, we want to walk with you through that. We want to celebrate that with you. We want to do that with you. And so, like, feel free. Like, come and talk to me after the service. Like, be happy to talk through that with you. All right, with that said, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to take communion.